I'm David Baltimore from the California Institute of Technology. Uh, and I want to talk today about microRNAs. Uh, microRNAs were discovered uh, back in the uh, 1990s, uh, but really only since the year 2000 have we understood uh, how many microRNAs there are and how important they are. Uh, and I'm going to talk about them in the context of a particular kind of biology, which is the biology of mammalian blood cells, uh, because in that context, you begin to see how important microRNAs are. They're generally made as part of long precursors uh, and cut out of those long precursors to give rise to the uh, 22 nucleotide uh, microRNA. We were interested in microRNAs because we had been interested in the process of inflammation. Inflammation is something that occurs in humans and, and in all mammals. It's a response to infection. It's a response to, to uh, all sorts of pathologic circumstances. And we found years ago that a single family of transcription factors uh, are responsible for controlling inflammation. Uh, so that when a cell is exposed to some kind of inflammatory stimulus, this family of transcription factors turns on a whole panoply of genes that change the nature of cell and make the cell uh, a, able to counter an inflammatory situation. Uh, that involves the activation of something like a thousand genes. And so this transcription factor, which is called NF-kappa-B, is responsible for activating some thousand genes. Uh, so here's a, an indication of how you turn on NF-kappa-B. Uh, it's the exposure of cells to a whole range of things uh, that are pro-inflammatory, that are uh, signals of inflammation. Chemicals like IL-1 in the cell or external things like the lipid polysaccharide from bacterium. Those things all cause NF-kappa B to be released. So NF-kappa B ordinarily sits in cells with an inhibitor on it called I-kappa B, that orange thing. Uh, and what all of these things do is cause the degradation of I-kappa B, the release of NF-kappa B, which is two subunits. Uh, it then goes to the nucleus and turns on this thousand target genes. We don't really know the number terribly well. Uh, and that produces an inflammatory response, counters infection. So we wanted to understand whether microRNAs play any role in this process. And years ago, uh, we simply asked, was there any involvement of microRNAs in the inflammatory response? Uh, so let's first talk about how in microRNAs work. MicroRNAs, and there's one shown here uh, in this uh, oval, uh, one that happens to be illustrative. Uh, MicroRNAs, again, very short, uh, but there are about eight nucleotides that are absolutely key. 
those eight nucleotides allow a microRNA to interact with a messenger RNA. So here we have a messenger RNA. Uh, it happens to be for a protein called IRF4. Uh, the blue part of it is the coding region. The black part of it is a non-coding region. And buried in there is a target for a microRNA. And the sequence of that target is shown down here. It's exactly complementary to the eight nucleotides on the microRNA. So a microRNA seeks out a messenger RNA, binds to it, and that prevents the translation, in fact, leads to the degradation of the messenger RNA. So microRNAs are inhibitors of messenger RNA function. And they can be so effective that even though the cell's making a lot of a messenger RNA, it's making very little protein because it's, messenger RNA is being degraded really at the same time as being, or right after it's being synthesized. So microRNAs were originally thought to be a curiosity uh, that modulated gene expression in some way. But we now know that it's actually a partner in the whole regulatory process, and that microRNAs and transcription factors are part of a circuitry in cells that allow for precise decision-making about how much of a given protein is made. Um, and so we would like to know then, for any given microRNA, what's its physiologic role, that is, what are its targets, and how do they fit into normal physiology, and uh, what proteins are controlled by it. So we did this experiment, as I said, many years ago, um, and simply said, uh, when there's an inflammatory process going on in a cell, are there any microRNAs whose concentration goes up? So the inflammatory process was, was uh, caused by uh, lipopolysaccharide, which is a part of bacteria uh, that cause mammalian cells to excrete in pro-inflammatory molecules. And we just asked of a couple of hundred microRNAs, all uh, strung out here, uh, were any of them increased? And three were increased. Uh, they, those three are 132, 146, and 155. And so we said, that's a nice number. Uh, we can work on that. That's not so big that we can't find enough graduate students to work on it. Um, and it's not so small that it's inconsequential. And so let me tell you about these three microRNAs. Uh, microRNA-132 is the first one I'll talk about. It's highly conserved. So there's the sequence of it in many different um, animals. They're not e actually even all uh, mammals. Uh, and it's the same, at least the seed sequence, that key sequence is the same uh, in all of those. Uh, and what it's doing uh, then is searching out uh, a messenger RNA. And we'd like to know what messenger RNA that is. Um, but first, we characterized the nature of this microRNA. We call them MIRs, M-I capital R. Uh, and 
we found, first of all, that it was enriched in the stem cells of the blood. Um, so what's a stem cell? This is a stem cell. Stem cells are um, cells that give rise to all of the different elements of the blood. And they give rise to it in a hierarchical differentiation scheme that leads to lymphoid cells and myeloid cells and, and red blood cells and platelets. But all of these derive from one stem cell. It's the only cell that can renew itself in the blood. It's actually found in the bone marrow, but then those cells go out into the blood. Uh, and it does renew itself. Uh, and so it's constantly making more of itself, but also making all of these downstream elements. And that's a true stem cell, self-renewing and giving rise to uh, all of the elements of a tissue, in this case, a liquid tissue. Uh, now, how do we figure out whether a microRNA is able to influence these blood cells? We do that by, first of all, expressing a large amount of the microRNA in bone marrow cells, in these stem cells, and seeing what the consequence of that is. So we do that using virus vectors. Uh, so here's a mouse. Uh, we, we treat that mouse to increase its number of stem cells. We then sacrifice that mouse, take the bones, long bones from the mouse, extract the cells from that, and then we put into those cells virus particles that encode, in this case, microRNA-132. Now the stem cells are making large amounts of 132, and there's no control over it because we've put it in there under the control of the virus's genes. Uh, we take those now modified cells and we put them back in a mouse. But we've treated that mouse to kill off its ordinary bone marrow cells, blood generating cells. And now all the blood will be generated from these modified cells that we modified in the laboratory. We wait a few weeks, months, um, until the new cells have taken over. Uh, and now we characterize uh, the animal. And so if we do that, uh, one thing we see, for instance, is that, uh, as that orange line shows, uh, there are more blood cells initially than in a control animal, as shown by the black cell line. Uh, there's more cells for a while, for a couple, couple of weeks, and then suddenly the bone marrow begins to fail. And by a few months, uh, there, is, there are many fewer blood cells than normal. So there's an enormous pathology been generated by the overexpression of this microRNA. Uh, we find increased numbers uh, of cells uh, over short periods of time, and then decreased numbers of cells over longer periods of time. Uh, that's the first clue as to what's going on. 
But this overexpression method, very uh, interesting, uh, but not physiological. Uh, and to really understand the physiology, what we want to do is ablate microRNA-132. And you can do that. You do that with genetic trickery. Um, and we ablate 132, and then we look at the animals. And what we saw, particularly after about a year, was the same sort of pathology that we saw by overexpression. And that didn't make sense. Because you'd think you'd get the complementary picture, not the identical picture. You get fewer blood cells. Actually, the animals fail uh, because of fewer blood cells. But when we looked in the bone marrow at the stem cells themselves, what we saw was that there weren't less of them, there were more of them. It's just that they weren't differentiating. They weren't giving rise to product cells. So if we compare overexpression and deletion, we can see that although they have the same indication, reduced numbers of cells, they're for two different reasons. In the overexpression case, you're wearing out the bone marrow. They're producing more and more cells for a while, and then less and less because they, they're literally worn out. In the case of knocking out the gene, knocking out the, mes the microRNA, uh, you get an increased number of stem cells, but they don't function right. And we realized that there must be a key protein uh, that was being affected by 132. And so we looked for that. And we looked for it by overexpressing the, the microRNA and just asking which um, gene was, was downregulated. And we found two. Uh, one of them, uh, a SOX gene, I won't talk about because it's part of another story. It's interesting. The gene that is interesting here is FOXO3. FOXO3, and here's the messenger RNA for FOXO3, has a perfect sequence for interaction with 132. Uh, and 132 causes a major downregulation in FOXO3. And you can see that here, where we look at the protein uh, levels uh, in overexpressing cells or, or wild-type cells. Um, and we can also overcome this effect by expressing FOXO3 without its regulatory region. And if we do that, we overcome the inhibition. And so the inhibition is evident in the orange bar, uh, and the overcoming of it is evident in the blue bar. Um, and so what happens is that 132 actually buffers FOXO3 expression. Uh, and the way we look at it is this, uh, is that if you have too much FOXO3 expression, it's bad. That's the knockout of 132. And you don't get differentiation. If we have too little FOXO3, that's with the overexpression of 132, so we make a lot of the inhibitory microRNA. It's also bad. Now the bone marrow works too hard. FOXO3 is a break um, that uh, we're, we're taking off.
And so it's a, it's a sort of, and I'll, I'll describe it later, as a Goldilocks situation. A situation in which you don't want too much, you don't want too little. You want just enough. Um, and so what I view it as is setting up a regulatory tension, a tension between too much and too little, in which we have to find the midpoint. Um, and that's where the physiology is uh, appropriate to the situation. So let me talk about the other two microRNAs that I introduced to you that are increased by inflammation, 146. And I talk about 146A, which is the one that we actually study, uh, and 155. Both of them are induced by inflammatory stimuli. But the work that we've done over the years, and I'm, I'm not only going to summarize it, uh, has shown that they play opposite roles. Uh, and you can see those roles here. So let me describe what this is. Uh, up here, uh, we show a, a surface of a cell that's interacting with a pro-inflammatory stimulus, in this case, as, as I've been describing, lipopolysaccharide. That then sends a signal into the cell uh, that is evident uh, or that, that is uh, activated uh, by proteins which we know about. Those proteins are TRAF6 and IRAC1. They lead finally to that IKK complex that I talked about uh, earlier. And that in turn uh, strips off the inhibitor from NF-kappa B and allows NF-kappa B to go into the nucleus. And two of the genes that NF-kappa B activates are these microRNA genes for 146 and 155. But by careful dissection, we can show that the role of 146 is as a negative controller of these intermediate proteins. So it downregulates these proteins and downregulates the stimulus which has come from the lipopolysaccharide. 155, by contrast, uh, upregulates the, the uh, system, actually by downregulating inhibitors. That's how it works mechanistically. And so it's a positive feedback regulator. So we have positive feedback and we have negative feedback coming from the same stimulus. That sounds confusing, but what it leads to, again, is regulatory tension. Let me show you how we know that. So the first thing we do is to knock out 146A. Those animals are born normal, but over six months, they develop a picture that looks very similar to what happens with the 132 overexpression. You, you overstimulate the bone marrow, you make too many cells, uh, and finally, uh, the bone marrow crashes, and you stop making cells at all. Um, and what you actually, the hallmark of this is you get these huge spleens that form uh, because uh, the animal's trying to make blood cells in the spleen because it can no longer use its bone marrow. Um, so how does 146A work? It works, as I told you, by inhibition of TRAF6. I also mentioned that what TRAF6 does is activate NF-kappa B. That activates secretion 
of pro-inflammatory molecules like IL-6. They stimulate hematopoietic stem cells. And so if we knock out 146, which is an inhibitor, you overstimulate the stem cells and get too much product. That's the nature of uh, knocking out an inhibitor. Now, how about 155? I said it's a positive regulator. Uh, and so what happens if we knock them both out? And we did that by knocking out 155, crossing it with the 146 knockout, making animals that had neither of those. And we found that that suppressed the phenotype from 146. So over here we can see that uh, 146 causes a big increase in IL-6 secretion, and that if we knock out 155, as the green bar shows, uh, that goes back to normal. Um, and there are many other parameters in which the same thing is evident. In fact, if we infect those animals with a bacterium, they handle that bacterium better because they're making more uh, cells that limit the infection, more proteins that limit the infection. And if we look at 155 production in the knockout, which is the uh, red bar, compared to uh, the ordinary situation, you actually get more 155 because it's in the feedback loop from, uh, from 146. So 155 deficiency rescues 146. Overexpression results also imply this. And it implies that 155 is essential for the 146 phenotype. And an experiment we should have done years ago, we finally did when we realized all of this, which is just look at what happens when you treat cells with lipopolysaccharide, with a pro-inflammatory stimulus, to both 155 and 146. 155, as I showed you before, and as is evident here in the black line, goes up and then comes down. But 146 goes up much more slowly and stays up over time, uh, literally over days. And so the inhibitory influence is the dominant influence at long periods of time, the stimulatory influence is the dominant effect at short periods of time. And that uh, allows us here to uh, look at uh, the same diagram I showed you before, but now we see that negative feedback is slow and positive feedback is fast. That then generates a regulatory tension, just as I showed you for 132. But this is now a tension between two microRNAs that evolves over time in this inflammatory milieu. Uh, that uh, perception, which we had some time ago, uh, was uh, reinforced by a comment uh, that was made in an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, it was an article about something entirely different, something called the inflammasome, uh, which uh, 
causes inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, but in the process of uh, describing this in the journal, um, they pointed out that there's a microRNA uh, shown right here, uh, which is actually inhibitory to the inflammasome. And they described what was going on in the following way. They said, in the aggregate, the evidence points to a relationship between the health of your colon and inflammatory activation that's reminiscent of the porridge in the story of Goldilocks. Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Inflammasome activation must be neither too hot nor too cold, but just right. And so this notion that we developed of tension, regulatory tension, may have very wide implications in many different situations. Uh, in general, it may be that in biology, you're never working at the extremes. You're always working somewhere in the middle because that's the sweet spot where the physiology uh, allows you to live a long and healthy life uh, and still be able to respond to external stimuli. In summary, microRNAs play many different regulatory roles just in what we call hematopoiesis, in the formation of blood cells uh, or in the functions of blood cells, but also in the whole rest of the body, in the heart, in the lungs, in the, in the kidneys. Um, in this case, we see 146 down-regulating, 155 up-regulating, and they work coordinately to produce a tension. 132 buffering a transcription factor, again, keeping stem cells just right. And in the arc, uh, article in the New England Journal, MIR 223, keeping the inflammasome at just the right level of response to allow uh, for normal colonic health. All of these things, many of these things, the ones I talked about, when they're dysregulated, actually cause leukemia. Uh, something which I haven't mentioned, uh, because uh, you get dysregulated blood cells that go on to become really dangerous to the body. With that, I thank you.